Show me the crypto. <laughs> Show me the crypto. <laughs> Show me the crypto. In a world on the brink of disruption, two men will bring you clarity by interviewing some of the most intelligent and influential names in the blockchain world. Welcome to Show Me the Crypto with your hosts, Wade Patterson and Ulf Lonegren. Well, hi there, and welcome to Show Me the Crypto. My name is Wade Patterson. And I'm Ulf Lonegren. We're a couple of friends from Canada who love learning about cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, and we're happy you're along for the ride. Whether you're a crypto virgin or you know your way around the block, we hope our interviews with some of the most intelligent and influential people in the blockchain space help deliver you with value. And on this episode, we're joined by producer and artist Daniel Allen, who is bridging the gap between EDM and pop music. Less than 15 months ago, Daniel minted his first music NFT, and since then he has raised 50 ETH for his EP Overstimulated, sold 26 one-of-ones on Catalog, sold 175 editions on Sound, dropped a generative collection on Beat Foundry, played his first headline show in LA, and if all of that's not enough, Daniel drops his next EP, Glass House, on his own website, danielellen.xyz, later this week. But as Daniel recently wrote... Despite all of this, it somehow feels like he's just getting started. Daniel, welcome to Show Me the Crypto. Wow, that was the craziest intro I think I've ever had. Wow. Wade well hypes people up. Influential, intelligent, man, I don't know. Those are some crazy adjectives for me, but, but I'll take it, man. I'll there take are, it. Thank you so much. They're all true. It's yeah, the truth. We're, we're excited to have you on the show and want to start off with kind of your upbringing and your background with music? Because my understanding is that you kind of fell in and out of love with music over the years, but then started to get a bit more serious about it at the age of 14. So can you just give us the deep dive background of how music influenced your life growing up? Yeah, it's, it's definitely been like a very complicated love story. I think you got that right in a lot of ways. Um, I, you know, I grew up in a, in a pretty musical household. I think it was musical, but in a reserved way. Um, my mom and dad both did music growing up. My mom had like a PhD in musicology and as a Ukrainian like immigrant kid, you know, like you kind of have to grow up and do the piano lesson thing, you know, and, or, or at least pick some sort of an instrument. Right. And, um, my dad played guitar my mom played piano and I, I kind of followed in my mom's footsteps and was like, okay, I'm going to do this whole classical music thing and, uh, just take a shot at that. I got like a super Russian teacher, you know, had like the ruler and everything. And, uh, um, my dad kind of took a, a way more DIY approach to music. Like in the former Soviet union, he used to like, like go across the border because uh, my grandpa was a journalist so he had a way to get over there and he would like steal Beatles cds and then like kind of come back and just play them as his own original music at like high school shows and everyone thought he was the shit um <laughs> so they, they both had like very different musical upbringings and i guess that like amalgamation kind of led to uh to me getting into it for the first time but i'll never forget like when i was a little kid my dad gave me a Beatles cd for sergeant pepper and it was like one of my very first early memories uh of listening to music but as a kid who was doing the whole classical thing um it was never really for me. Like I was, uh, I was never good at reading music. Like the way that I would do it and going into piano recitals, is I would just ask my mom to sight read it because that's obviously like, she understands music like a language. And I would kind of like remember parts of it, not remember other parts. And I would show up to recitals. I would add my own little bridges and like random moments. And, um, yeah, it was, um, I, th I think it was later on when I was like, when, I mean, even when I was a kid, like in second, third grade, like my brother, was like 15 years older than me. He gave me his iPod classic. Um, 
And that, that iPod had like Rakim and Ella Cool J and Nas and Biggie and Tupac and a lot of um, old school rappers uh, that, that he came up on. And that was the first time really in my life that I had heard anything outside of classical music. Um, and then kind of like you alluded to when I was in middle school, um, that's when I noticed that there were a lot of rappers kind of walking up and down the hallway and um, at, at, at the middle school. And I wanted to find a way to record them. Um, and naively, I kind of, you know, didn't think it would be too hard. I mean, I was, I was definitely wrong, but I, um, you know, I, I saved up, I got my first job. I bought my first microphone. It was a hundred dollars studio projects B1. I still remember it. And, um, I set up the little like blankets in my closet and started recording people. Um, and after doing that for a couple of years, as I was starting to get into electronic music, I was, uh, I was like, yo, like, where do you guys get your beats? And they were like, yeah, man, we just rip them off YouTube. And that, that's kind of how I got into production. I was like, oh, like, I bet I could, you know, I bet I could probably figure this out uh, again, super naively, but, but that's kind of how I got into it. That's awesome. We're gonna, we're gonna get into your overstimulated EP a little more later in the conversation, but this kind of ties into that EP. Um, it's my understanding that your journey to LA is what inspired the overstimulated EP. And it was a lot of your experiences along the way. And I'm curious if you can break down, you know, for those who aren't familiar, what those experiences were, what you were going through, maybe how you fell in and out of love a little bit with music during that journey and how this all ended up leading towards Web3. If that was really the catalyst or maybe you already had another catalyst into Web3, but how it ties together. For sure. Yeah, that's a great question. I think it totally was a catalyst. Um, for me, I so, so I went to college. Uh, I went to Boston University. And when I was there... I was very much doing um, school music with school on the side rather than school with music on the side. So while all of my friends were doing internships and whatnot, uh, I would just go to LA. And I, at one point I was living on my friend's grandma's couch in San Clemente, which is like two hours south of LA. And I would like, you know, I, I would have, I was just a really hungry dude, you know, like just speaking candidly, I, I would set up sessions where I would do, because producers kind of, you know, a lot of musicians like they work until like four or five in the morning and then they wake up at like noon. Like I was on some crazy shit. Like I would set up sessions from 8 a.m. to noon, from 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. and then from 7 p.m. to 11 p.m. And then I would drive back from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. I would sleep from one to five and then I would travel at six. And, and, I, and I did that every day. And um, that was never an issue for me. Like that was just so much fun. Like I, where all of my friends were like making money over the summer, I was spending everything that I had from like the mailroom job that I was working in college. And, um, but I was having the time of my life. It was really it felt like an adventure. Like I was just random sessions every day, like cold emailing people, cold texting, just really, I guess, learning some entrepreneurial skills that I didn't realize would, would come in handy until, you know, this past year or so, but, um, was just really trying to find my way and working with people. But then by the time I, I graduated school, um, that's kind of where this rocky relationship began. Um, because I did those summers, I, I already had relationships with people out here um, to be able to work on projects and whatnot and, and st start to find a way to pay my bills with music. And I, and I, to be fair, I was always really gung-ho on that. Like I always wanted, I was super dead set and stubborn on like, it's going to be music. Like, I don't care. Like, I, it's not going to be like, you know, my, again, my, my family is immigrants. So like, oh, like, is it music business? Is it the music industry? I'm like, no, no, no. Like, it's going to be music. Like, this, this is how I'm going to do it. Um, and for better or worse, that's what happened. I did it for, you know, I moved to LA January of 2020 and between January of 2020 and March of 2021, um, obviously this is like in the middle of the pandemic. Um, 
I was like, okay, if I can figure out how to do it while the world's falling apart, I can definitely find a way to do it afterwards. And um, in that window, music was my full-time job. I didn't have to pick up anything else, but it wasn't like this sexy, like I'm touring, I'm an artist, I'm making these hit singles. Like it was nothing like that really. Like it was, um, I was mixing and mastering a lot for other people. Um, I was producing a lot for other people and I was signing short-term record deals. Um, and those short-term record deals would just be like, you know, three, four songs here and there. I'd get a little bit of an advance up front to, to help pay my, my rent for the next few months. Um, but there was kind of this unspoken agreement that every time I stepped outside of that genre of music, it wouldn't necessarily be accepted. And, you know, that makes a lot of sense. Like I've, I've, I've been on the, on the record a lot saying like, I'm not a fuck record labels guy. I think that there's a world where there could be a lot of synergy between web two and web three in that world. But, um, for me, I, I'm just a kid who is for the longest time, for as long as I can remember, have, have just been interested in a lot of different types of genres. And I never felt like I had that creative, um, integrity and creative freedom. Uh, and so, yeah, for, for that year and a half, um, Music was my full-time job, which is still something that I'm really thankful for. I don't think a lot of people can say that, but it just wasn't what I thought it would be. Um, and in that process, I did start to fall out of love with music in a lot of ways. And that's kind of how Overstimulated came up. I mean, it was basically, I always thought that, I always thought that music was about creative expression. It was about um, really just doing dope shit and creating dope experiences for yourself. And hopefully you can find ways to inspire other people through it and, or, or make a story that someone connects with. And in that year and a half, I kind of realized that's just not it at all. Like that's, that's, that's maybe a part of it, but in order to, to get to that point, there's so many things that when you romantic, when you're a kid in your bedroom, romanticizing it from like 3000 miles away, you don't realize that that's a part of it. Um, like, you know, everyone was in my ear, like you have to post like 10 TikToks a day. You have to do this. You have to do that. Just things that I, that I, I never really anticipated. And that's kind of where this whole over my, my way of coping my entire life has always been. Uh, when things get crazy, I just don't talk to anyone. I just focus and I just, and I just get shit done. I lock the, I lock the door behind me in a studio and, and that's kind of what it's been my whole life. And that's what happened with overstimulated. Like I heard all of these things coming at me of what I should be doing. And I kind of rejected all of them and locked myself in a room. Over the last six to eight months, we've had a few guests talk specifically about music NFTs. It's the space that often I find the best way that we learn about anything is just having these types of conversations. And it's one that's taken a while for us to to wrap our heads around. And we've had people like Cooper Turley, like Sean Gardner, Obi Fernandez, who are kind of working at, at the higher level on this, but it's our first time having an actual musician, an actual artist talk about it from their perspective. Now you've experimented. One of the things that's very cool is you've experimented with seemingly every platform out there or many of the platforms i'm wondering can we just take a deep dive into each one can you kind of walk through each one i mentioned a lot of them in the bio and what that experience was like for both yourself and what collector's experience was like as well sure yeah i mean first of all it's an honor to be the, the first artist shout out to you guys for, <laughs> for having me again um, shout out to you <laughs> um but yeah so i, I think Maybe a good way to answer that would be a little bit of context as to how I got into this whole thing. Um, it kind of ties into what I was just talking about, like kind of that year and a half or so of living here. And um, I ended up playing a show in my friend's backyard. And the whole point of that show, and I promise this will answer your question. Um, I, um, I put a show in my friend's backyard. And the whole point of that show was to try to get a record deal. And you know, ironically, uh, but then I, I invited everyone in the music industry. I could, I invited like ARs, sync agents, managers, just, just really 
everyone. And um, I split up the show into two halves. The first half was like kind of this project that I was already putting out to try to get like some Spotify placements. And the second part was like what ended up being overstimulated. It was a lot of unreleased music. Um, it, it wasn't totally overstimulated, but it was like a good chunk of it. And um, I remember after that show, four people came up to me. Three of them were like various A&Rs and one was, was Cooper, who I just met a few months prior. Uh, he had just been DMing me really, like never wanting to work together or anything. He's like, yo, I love your music, like super casual, right? Um, and so I did... I, I pursued those three conversations and I got my first like major record deals and they, they really just weren't anything like, it's just not at all what I was expecting. Just like I was talking about like romanticizing what you think the music industry is like seeing those record deals was like another wake up call where I was like, damn, like this really doesn't, I, this, this isn't accomplishing at all. Like what I want, which is like making the type of music that I care about. Um, so um, getting into it, that's when Cooper, I reached out to him after I didn't like those deals. I was like, look, man, I don't know what you have in mind. Uh, but like working together, whatever you're kind of trying to say here, but um, I'm down to just listen to you. Um, this is again, like March of last year. Um, and he was like, yeah, man, you should drop NFTs. And at the time, like my only understanding of what an NFT was, was my only proxy was Beeple. Like I was like, all right, like th here's this insane visual artist who for, you know, how, like, is it like 15 years? Like just put, just made a piece of art every day, 5,000 days and like sold it for a shitload of money. But I was like, I, I don't have any, I, I'm not a visual artist, bro. Like I make beats in my room. Like I, I don't know how to do any of this stuff. And he was like, no, no, man. Like my friend, Jeremy is starting this platform called catalog. And on catalog, you can, all you need is a WAV file and a, and a JPEG, like just any kind of custom artwork. And I was like, all right, WAV file, I could probably do custom artwork. I could and probably finesse in one, in one way or another. And, um, you know, the one of one experience was one that I definitely will never forget because that was my first foray into, into music NFTs. And I remember like, I decided to make a series for my first thing. I called it, I called it the drifter series. And, um, I would literally go to a random location. I would plug my lap, my laptop into my Honda Accord. I would bring a disposable camera. I would make a beat on the spot. And then I would take pictures and I would just finesse a, like an artwork really. And it was like a collage of the pictures from that disposable camera that day. And like at 9 a.m., I made the beat at 1 p.m. I got the film developed. And at 5 p.m., I sold the beat to a total stranger for one ETH, which was at the time like 3,500 bucks or three grand or something like that. Wow. And that just fundamentally flipped my world upside down. Like oh, no I was, you know, I was just like, I don't have to blow up on TikTok. I don't have to have the craziest marketing campaign. Like I kind of just made this piece of art. Someone valued it at, as that because I wasn't even thinking about artists, thinking about hits and, and, and things of that nature, you know, like or stream counts or whatever. And I was like, I just kind of made this, this artwork piece and someone valued it at this much. I've never met this person. I don't know who they are, but they, they apparently they see something in me. Right. Um, so, you know, like my, my first instinct was, let me run that back. Right. So, but you know, I, I did one a couple of days later and by the end of the month I had sold five or six of them. Um, and then this is before sound came out. Um, I was like, okay, like there are bigger things that I want to try. Um, like maybe I do this EP and I, and I find a way to get, to get fans involved in it. I ended up doing an EP, the, the overstimulated thing, which is what you guys referred to where I raised like 50 and 24 hours for the project. Um, that opened my eyes to like understanding community ownership, understanding how DAOs work. And then I moved on to sound, which also flipped everything upside down because it's sound like my sound drop sold out. My first sound drop sold out in like three seconds. Like my second sound drop sold out in like 45 seconds. And it was a lot of the same people that pulled up to overstimulated and that's when I really started to see like parallels, right? Like I have a short list of people that really inspire me musically. Um, one of them is Skrillex because I think over the course of his career, he's touched so many genres of music without people even knowing. And I think that at the end of the day, 
as great of a producer as he is, as great of an artist he is, people that kind of just fuck with him just as much. And because of that, they're down to kind of follow his journey because they believe he's going to be innovative. And that was kind of the first time where I was like, oh man, like maybe I could do similar shit, you know? Um, like maybe, maybe like my lane is kind of merging these two things together. Um, so that, I, I hope that answers the question. Like, but I, I definitely started to see a lot of parallels on the one of one side and when I started doing sound. Oh, that's awesome. It's so great to hear sort of like the journey and the, and to go a little bit in depth around, you know, the different use cases. That's something we were recently covering. We had Cooper on the show and talking about the use case. I feel like it's still so early on in the world of music and web three that they probably, you know, all the use cases haven't, they, they definitely haven't been explored yet. They're st still so new but it's cool to talk to an artist who's already explored many different, um, you know, ways to to push your music out and push your art out. And obviously, it's been a positive reception. So, you know, power to you. That's awesome. Try um, my best, man. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. One thing I wanted to um, touch on you you brought it up briefly there, but in regards to overstimulated in that EP, you know, there was other components to that beyond just putting out the the EP and and working in some web three, you know, you had the DAO component, you've got the overstim token. Can you explain how all that works and how you involved a DAO in this whole process? Yeah. Um, so essentially, I wanted to my, my biggest two problems when I saw those record deals, like kind of come across my email were the splits of them, uh, like I would essentially be retaining 20% of my own masters um, and the lack of being able to work on the music that you care about. is again just the same shit that I was talking about earlier, where it's just like, you don't really have a choice. Um, so the reason that I wanted to overstimulate the TLDR here is I, the 50 ETH that I raised was community raised um, via crowdfund. There were 87 backers. Um, in exchange for the NFTs that they purchased, they were, they got, they got into the Overstim Discord, which is essentially um, it gave them creative governance over a lot of the decisions that were being made, whether they were marketing moves, um, artwork moves, um, and they also receive a chunk of streaming for the songs. Hmm. Um, and in that world, but you know, as as dope as Overstim is, uh, was and continues to be, like, you know, there were definitely some some shortcomings that I had to figure out as well, like. The trade-off here, it's not like all sunshine and rainbows. Like, yes, I, I I got 50 ETH for the project, which is pretty good of a record advance for an artist my size, right? Well, I mean, that wasn't like, there was like an advanced section, so it wasn't that, but it's a, it's still a great deal for an artist of my size. I retained 50% of my masters, which is a lot better than those record deals. And at the end of the day, it's like, fan. It's like I'm doing it with fans and, and a community, so I'm able to like do whatever kind of music I want to. So it solved those preliminary surface level pro uh, problems, but... What it didn't solve, right, is what you know. What record labels have going for them is like they have infrastructure, and I'm just kind of like at the time, you know, I'm a 24 year old kid, like handed, you know, like two hundred thousand dollars, and I'm like, what the fuck do I do with this? Like, like how do I market this? Like normally, it's like my entire life I've been with record labels. They're just like, yeah, just give us the song, and, and you're chilling, and and you know, that was kind of the biggest overhaul um, was trying to figure out like. How do I, at the end of the day, like when I was a 16 year old kid, my like biggest goal was to wake up every day, live in Los Angeles and make music and like be able to pay my rent from it. And because of overstimulated that happened. But at the same time, I had this divergence between that and like a bunch of my other goals. Like, oh, I, like when I was, when I got into producing for people, right. I got into producing for them because a week, a couple weeks before that 
I like stumbled into Lollapalooza and was like, oh shit, I want to do that one day. Right. But in order to do that, you have to have an agent to have an agent. You have to stream well to stream well. You have to be signed to a label or you have to have a viral moment on TikTok. And you kind of like you find yourself. I found myself back in these patterns of problems that I was running into beforehand. Um, and so that's why I think the, the best case scenario in all of this is like is a, a place where both of these worlds can kind of live together and work. But um, overstimulated was definitely like, you know, it was the, it was the craziest experience of my life. Like when I got I got a page in Time magazine for it and I sent it to my mom and dad. And that was the first time they were like, whoa, dude, you actually like do music. You know, it was, it was definitely a moment. <laughs> That's um, awesome, man. But yeah, yeah. It was, it's still like one of my bigger career milestones for sure. The fact that you were experimenting with music NFTs more than a year ago, I think makes you one of the most OG in the space. And so if there's somebody listening to this episode, or perhaps they're watching on YouTube and they are a musician or an artist and they've been kind of sitting on the fence. What is your advice to them? Like, especially somebody who's explored so many different platforms, like should they jump in? Is now a good time? Where do they get started? Short answer is yes, they should jump in. Uh, long, longer answer is, um, the advice that I could get, the micro advice that I could give is a moving goalpost. Um, about a year ago, the advice that I was giving was hop into every discord server and say GM. Cause that's what I did all of last summer. Um, it would be individually DMing people on Twitter, which I still think could be a play. But what I will say that I think is regardless of, of what the micro advice is, is I think too many people, um, overthink and under execute, um, when it comes to like web three music, I think the it's actually like to a benefit that there are more things going on right now like when i was getting started it was literally just catalog uh and zora like for the most part on uh, catalog just it, catalog uses zora's contract so basically like zora and catalog were minus the curation the same thing um but i would say that my biggest piece of advice is just start somewhere find a pocket of people that are at the same level as you in terms of knowledge and kind of learn with all of them because it is like a very intimidating thing. I will say that like to get into it, like I, and I got really lucky. Um, Cooper was my first friend in crypto. And I told Cooper, I was like, bro, like you being my only friend in crypto is like 14 year old Daniel sending demos to Skrillex. Like the gap is just so fucking big that like your advice almost like isn't helpful. Uh, like I remember when I was learning how to make music, like me and all of my friends were terrible together. So like when we send each other bad songs, like we would laugh like, oh, that's a terrible snare. Like that's a terrible kick, but let's like all figure it out. And I feel like, I feel like people throw the word community around a lot for better or worse to the point where it can almost be like cringy sometimes. But I think if you find that like peer group in terms of people that are at the same level to you and you're all trying to figure something new out, um, that to me is like the wave. Uh, Cause I can name all of the, I can name on one hand, like the people who were with me early on, who are now also doing like really dope shit um, in music NFTs, but we all kind of were like my friend Grady, I would, I would go to his house. It was like 10 minutes from me. He's the founder of good karma records. And like at that, I remember like, we would just be like, Oh man, like what if I did a label? Like, what if I did this? We were, we were just be sitting around like Googling all day, you know? And, um, but yeah, for me, the general piece of advice is just start executing because there's so many more resources now than there were when I got started. There's so many people that you can talk to. Um, there's so many YouTube videos and interviews that you can watch and, and learn about. Um, but just don't be intimidated to get in because I, one thing I will say is I'm not like a genius. Like I'm, you know, I, I definitely work hard, but I don't, I, I'm not like, 
I've, I've been asked that sometimes. So like I've been asked a few times to be like, Oh, like tell us about like, like crypto, like security and whatnot. And I'm like, bro, I am like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like music NFT guy. And like barely that, you know? So <laughs> I, I would just say like, don't be intimidated by all the noise and just jump in and try to find some friends early on. Ulf, do you realize our audience has been either watching or listening to this episode for 20 minutes? 20 minutes? No, they should probably subscribe. Yeah, they should subscribe. And if you're watching on YouTube, make sure you comment and turn on notifications. And if you're listening to this podcast, especially if you're on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and a review. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and even TikTok. So go check out the episode description. You can find all that information below. And we have an update on the NFT, don't we? That's right. We didn't previously mention this, but this NFT for OG supporter is a one of one. There will only be one of this kind ever minted. And we have a few surprises for the person who purchases it. The link is in the episode description. And back to the episode. So this is going to be a two-parter. I want to know about the Glass House EP and everything you have going on there because um, you're doing things a little differently with this one as far as I understand it, but I'll let you break that down. The second part, which kind of ties into what you're perhaps what you're doing with Glasshouse, but maybe looking more into the future is you've already experimented a bit here in the world of Web3 music. Glasshouse is maybe uh, going to be more experimentation. And so the follow-up question to that is, where do you go next in the world of Web3 music? Do you already have ideas and strategies for what to explore and pursue? So there it is. Gotcha. All right. So so here, here it comes, Glasshouse. So Glasshouse originally started um, when I started having those thoughts in like November-ish, where... I felt like a lot of my dreams were coming true, but I felt like other ones weren't. And and at the same time, I was I was really fortunate to be able to meet a lot of artists that I really looked up to um, during that period because where I was looking for help on the Web two side, they were looking for help on the Web three side. Um, and I was doing the thing is like I'm happy to like I'm always happy to talk on interviews. Like I love doing this stuff because I'm able to like kind of amplify my story as much as I can. Um, but at the same time, like at the core of it all, like when I made overstimulated and when I just really like my day-to-day -day life, I'm a musician, like it's kind of what has really defines me, uh, in a lot of ways. And it's something that I hold near and dear to me. And I, I just noticed that like, for example, the first day after overstimulated happened, I had, uh, 14 hours of phone calls back to back. I didn't need, I lost my voice. And that was like it, the 14 hour one was crazy, but I would do like eight hours a day of talking and, and, and making music is, you know, as an individual is a very introverted thing. Like as a producer is a very introverted thing. Obviously you could do sessions and have a bunch of people over and have a crazy time, but that's like the sexy part. A lot of it is like, and finishing music is like things that you have to do by yourself. And, um, so I decided to do another crowdfund after overstimulated with the community manager of overstimulated. His name is Henry Chatfield. And, um, we decided to do this thing called Daniel Allen and friends where we would raise a crowd, raise, um, raise some ETH to be able to get an Airbnb um, where I would go and just lock in with a bunch of people and make my next project. Um, we raised nine ETH for it. The goal is to beat the amount of backers in Overstim. So, and we did, I think there are 93 backers. Um, but the, the whole point really was to be able to kind of uh, use Web3 tooling, which I realized pretty quickly would just be like a part of my, my brand and like identity really, um, to be able to 
kind of bring to life some of my my other goals, um, which was just like making really dope music. And so I did that writing camp. There were six, it was two weeks at this at this glass house in Malibu with all my best friends. So that's how the name Glass House came up. Um, it was like right on the water. I still think about it all the time. Um, but um, there were 64 Ableton Project files that came from that camp. And I picked the best four to be on the EP. I was like very, very selective with it because I wanted them to just be like, I don't know. Like I, I, I don't want to just be like a artist in Web three is putting out like average stuff. Like I really wanted to go hard on making like the most timeless dope music that I could. Uh, like music that I would show my friends and that I would really enjoy listening to. After I made the project, obviously my first thought was, I need to be able to have some sort of like a Web three tooling that, in a way, like one ups over STEM. Like I wanted to be able with every drop that I do. If you look back on everything that I've done. Whether it's a flop or not, I've always tried new things. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but like when I raced for overstimulated, there was still a lot of my one-on-ones on catalog that hadn't sold. You know, when I I tried like two or three different projects on like OpenSea that were all music related, I sold a few of them. But it, I feel like there's this like toxic um, culture around music NFTs. It's like, oh, if they don't sell out automatically, you're fucked, or you, you do, you're doing a bad job, or whatever it is. Um, but I've had a lot of those moments, and I've never really been discouraged by them because I think that people remember like the good moments more. Um, and anyways, what I'm getting at is when the music was done, it was in a, or in a place where it, where it felt close enough. Um, you know, I dropped overstimulated January 7th. I was like, okay, like the way the music industry works is you need to start dropping music soon. But I didn't, I was convinced that I didn't want to drop anything new until I had like an innovative rollout, like something that was a little bit new. And so around the time of ETH Denver this year, I think it was like, I think it was maybe end of February is when it was like end of February, early March. Um, I started noticing like a lot of similar patterns. Like when I was, when I was talking earlier about, you know, music industry patterns and things that kind of kept happening, I started noticing something similar in web three, which was like, really there are these two curated platforms, catalog and sound, which I love. Uh, and they definitely changed my career, a career, but, um, it be, you know, they each now have a, like a wait list of like hundreds of people that really want to get onto the platform. And, um, at the same time, like I started thinking about like, what is the, what has the music industry like historically been? If you think back to like the streaming era of music, like, or when it, when it first started, um, when the streaming era first came up, there was a divergence between music discovery and the actual marketplaces. So if you think about like hype machine, that's where people would go to discover music, but then they would actually go consume it on like Spotify or they would get it on iTunes or rip it on LimeWire. Right. Um, but there wasn't really like one like clean way to do it. And then with time, Spotify became really curated. Um, like there's new music Friday and all these other things that kind of cut out the middleman of curation. It's kind of like why blogs are a little bit less relevant now than, than, you know, than they used to be. Um, I think right now the major curated platforms in music are kind of serving as the MVP for both. Um, Anyone that knows what's good about music NFTs knows what 2 p.m. means. 2 p.m. is the Twitter spaces that sound holds every day. Um, or I guess used to hold for, for a minute and now it's like different times. But at 2 p.m. every day for like a good amount of time there, anyone who knew everything, anything about music NFTs or wanted to know something would hop into these Twitter spaces. Um, there would kind of be this like moment around this instant sellout for this artist, right? But more importantly, like a lot of prospective collectors and people that wanted to be a part of a project would first discover an artist by pulling up to the space. Um and for th that's why I think that curated platforms are absolutely essential. And what I'm doing for this drop is like to be done in tandem. But my, my like fundamental question was, okay, like these, these platforms are starting to raise like a little bit of money and, and they're going to start 
uh, doing some drops that are going to feel a little bit more, that are just going to feel more and more curated. Um, and while those are really good PR moves, I think I've always, and, I, and I'd probably do a similar thing if I were like in, in that position. Um, I've always championed stories like my own of like the small artist who had 200 Twitter followers and, and kind of did it, did it on his own way and, you know, on his own terms. Um, and yeah, for me, the, the glass house drop has really just been me asking the question when people say like, Oh, like, do you, I want to drop the catalog. I want to drop the sound. Like I want the answer to be, you don't, that's not the only way to do it. Like you don't necessarily have to do it that way. Um, my like kind of thesis here is like, if you own the relationship that you have with your fans and you have like an effective marketing funnel, um, you should be able to kind of do things on your own terms. Um, and I'm totally going to keep dropping with sound. I'm totally going to keep dropping with catalog. But one of the reasons that I'm doing this drop on my own contract, um, is, I kind of wanted to have full autonomy, you know, if I'm being blunt, like, um, with, with sound. So, so I think that additions are a better model to music NFTs than one of ones. I think they're different. I don't, I shouldn't even say better. They're just different. But, um, the reason that I slightly have, have a slight preference over additions is because it gets more people in the door. Uh, it's just a lower barrier to entry. Um, it's more realistic for people to get involved with your music NFTs if you do that. Um, and, with catalog, like when, when you're, when you're doing one of ones, if you're on the platform, you could drop like eight songs in a day if, if you want to, but because of like the, the sound Twitter spaces, because of like the importance of it being spread out for them, you kind of have to put yourself in like a two to three month queue. Once you've dropped in a season, you have to wait. And, you know, I think I speak for a lot of musicians when I say like, they make a lot of music and there's a lot of music that can come out and we've kind of become used to these, um, like windows that you know, like you, you drop every two months, you drop every three months when really a lot of fans, uh, you know, a lot of my friends who are fans of like casual music are just like, dude, like why doesn't this artist drop all the time? Like they have the music. Like there's just a lot more that goes behind it. And I wanted to try to solve that problem early on as best I could. Um, so yeah, that's why I'm doing this drop on my own contract. Um, another caveat is you could have uh, Zora is actually a workaround to those problems uh, because Zora, you could, you can mint however many additions, like whenever you want to, but I'm also doing like, like dynamic rarity traits for it, um, for my drop. So it's like, what I'm getting at is the reason that I did everything on my own contract is it answers the question of like, if you can't get on a curated platform it answers the question of after you get on a curated platform, how do you cult continue to cultivate the relationship that you have with the people that connect your work? And if you want like a custom drop, you know, without, and without paying an arm and a leg for this, which I didn't at all. Um, how do you do this? Like, you don't have to be rich to do it. Like how can, how is this like replicable by other artists? Um, so a little bit mumble jumble in there, but that's, I think that answers a lot of it. That's awesome to understand all the, you know, why you came to drop the glass house EP the way you're doing it. But for those who aren't familiar, can you do a real quick, um, sort of high level, like what is the drop? How is it happening? Because it's different than maybe how a lot of other musicians in Web3 have been dropping theirs. You know, you've added layers of there's different additions, there's there's rarity to these additions. So can you do a quick breakdown of just sort of the logistics of the drop? Totally. So at a foundational level, uh, I'm doing 1000 additions for my drop. Uh, what those additions are, are there are different rarities that are associated with the four songs on the project. Um, so, you know, some songs might be rarer than another, whatever the case is. Right. Um, and at the same time, uh, there's visual for each one. Uh, I don't want to say what they are yet because this is like pre-reveal. Uh, but 
there are certain rarity traits that are associated with each each image kind of akin to what you see in pfp projects um the reason that i'm doing it that way is because i want to create a space because i am doing additions that uh collectors who are like a little bit more interested in trying to find some of the rarest ones have a pretty clean way to be able to to sift through it and at the same time there is uh, there hasn't really been like some sort of like a, a huge moment in terms of music NFTs. I think that, you know, Overstim is definitely a big one and there are a lot of cool things that have happened, but I don't think that it's like hit mainstream NFTs in a way, even though I think it should, I think that, um, it's really dope to be able to like know who the artist is behind it rather than kind of just supporting the picture of it. Um, but, uh, so, so on a big level, that's what it is. But in terms of, in terms of the drop itself, like. So I obviously did not do this by myself. Like th that's want to make that clear. Like I had a team, uh, their name is Bonfire. They built out the custom storefront for the drop. So I kind of have just been iterating with them back and forth on what to make it look like. And then we used ramp to actually write and develop the contract and, and we're, we're going to deploy it from there. Um, but my whole, my whole reasoning for that is, you know, like a full stack developer can cost anywhere between like ten and $100,000, uh, depending on what the job is. And most artists don't have, don't have the money to just throw that around. So all in all, this is costing me like, a, I think like 150 bucks for gas. Um, but yeah, I think, I think generally speaking, that's everything. That's like most things about the drop. Uh, it's, it's, it's a thousand additions. Um, there are dynamic rarity traits around the images and the music. Um, yeah, I think that's everything. How did with this uh, with Bonfire, because I think that's something that a lot of musicians, if they do want to go the route of sort of doing this, you know, their way and doing their own drop, that's one of those immediate barriers. It's like, man, I have no clue yeah. how this works. I don't know the technical aspect. So how did you go about finding a partner who, you know, isn't going to cost you an arm and leg to to, you know, have this all all this technical work done? Yeah. So, I mean, in a lot of ways, it was right timing. I met Bonfire when I was building out Overstim. Uh, and I, I don't remember how we were connected. It might've been through Cooper, but I think it was actually through Brett, a blockchain Brett. Um, he connected us, but basically they were, I think, switching over from the Rally ecosystem into ETH and just wanted like a project to work on. And ever since then, they, there are other uh, artists that they've taken on. I actually think that by the time this comes out, I think there's they'll still be like very open to be able to like listen and hear from a bunch of artists and build out drops for them. But I think right now it's similar. It's like when you have like a videographer, um, he or she will, you know, build out um what's it called? Like a freaking like a tape, uh like a reel. Yeah. They'll, they'll build right. out like a reel um before like they, you know, before they bring like bigger clients on just show what they have. And I think that's kind of the stage that Bonfire was in. But there are a lot of other people out there that are building like custom storefronts as well. Um, but yeah. I think it was just a point where they were transitioning to a different ecosystem and wanted to um, try to find a world to work with an artist in a more um, direct way. One of the things Cooper had mentioned was a benefit from the collector side was a level of access to the musician hmm. or to the producer that previously wasn't available or much more difficult to obtain. What I'm wondering about from your perspective, how do you feel at, you know, you've talked about all of the additional things, you know, you had this dream of, being an artist and just making great music, but then you've got the social media layer, you've got doing interviews like this, you've got all of these other things, and then you add in maybe that community element or certain fans that maybe start to feel that they have a certain level of entitlement because they have a certain level of NFT and that type of thing. 
are you comfortable with that? And what if you get like a stalker fan or something like that? Like, I mean, any concerns along those lines, somebody who like feels that they're entitled to too much of your time? Yeah, man. I mean, shit, I guess we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, ha- it hasn't happened yet, but I, I think that, um, to be honest, man, it's, it's, I've, maybe I've been really fortunate. Um, and I'm happy to admit that, but it's been really gratifying to be honest. Like, I feel like before all of this stuff happened, like, here's how my interactions would go at, at like parties in LA. Oh man. Like what kind of music do you make? Oh, I'll make this kind of like electronic stuff. Like, you know, like kind of in the pop lane. Oh, cool. Like, are you, on, are you on Spotify? Yeah. 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 Here's the link. Cool. I'll check you out. And that's like the end of the conversation. Whereas now, like I'm proud of the shit I've built, you know, like I'm, I'm happy to just be like, yeah, like I built this shit for artists. I built this shit for myself. Like here's some great resources that you can try out. And like, I think people have been really, really receptive to that. And, and actually like, maybe I'm fortunate with the, with the fans that I've accumulated along the way, but everyone is always like, I'm having like cool conversations with them too. It's not only like, hi, bye. Like, yo, like actually, by the way, here's what I'm doing, you know? Oh, let me link you with this person. Like, I think, I think it's been really dope. And outside of that, like, overstimulated like one of the songs had like a really big moment the song poison and like when i just played i just did like a uh, a run in new york um during an stnyc week and like people i looked up and like people were singing the song you know uh so in a lot of ways like some of those other dreams really started to come true like i mean i played a small show i played i played like a, a, some big shows i played like a broken mirage but then i played like some really small shows like battery electric right and at the battery electric show there were maybe like maybe like a hundred 50 maybe like 100 150 people there but like 30 of them 50 of them were like singing the words of the song i was like yo like that's you know that is i'm like i'll never forget that you know so fortunately it's been a smooth ride so far nice so knock on wood i want to start this next question which i realize i've never i never have complimented your music yet and i just want to say i'm a fan i love it Thanks, i also man. want to say that you said earlier on you're like you know what i'm not a visual artist i don't do that that's not my thing well i don't know if you had any part in the video you put out for overstimulated but the video is great too so go check it out if you haven't seen it because yeah we'll awesome. link to it we'll link to it yeah we'll link to it let's go yeah, let's go yeah. yeah it's a great one awesome and then moving on from that i did want to uh maybe jump back because I realized I asked you this huge question that required a huge answer, but the second part to it, I was still wondering, you know, where do you go after Glasshouse? Do you have ideas, obviously beyond, you know, making more music, how do you do that in the world of Web3? Do you have other ideas that you haven't explored yet? I do. Uh, I do have a bunch of other ideas, but I don't, don't want to share them away that quite yet. Yeah. What I will say, I'll try to give a little bit of a tidbit so I don't totally not answer. Um, I think that there is a world where um, there's a really clear way um, and a really consistent, sustainable way to be able to um, have fans share on the upside of your work. Um, and that's kind of what I'm working on over the course of like a one year time horizon. Uh, and I think that this drop is a pretty big step in that. Nice. Very cool. I have an, a bit of a niche question out there question because I it was actually... I can't remember which interview it was. It might have been Cooper's in early 2021. We had him on the podcast. And this was a time when we were just learning about what the hell an NFT is at that point. And and even then it was it, it didn't come clearly. Like it took a little bit of time to get there. But one of the things I become a, somewhat of an NFT collector and one of the things that catches my attention with NFTs or that I pay more attention to is ones that have some historic significance or ones that were maybe pre 2021. 
But it's interesting when you think about, in the sense of music NFTs, you are kind of amongst the the first class of people putting this out. So have you given any thought to maybe five, 10 years down the road that not only will you have your music, but the fact that you may be considered a historic artist and in the in the world where speculation and all of that sort of thing, you know, it, it's wild. Any thoughts around being one of the first artists to do that? Yeah. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, that's why like I have the perspective that I have and it kind of liberates me to do whatever I want to do in terms of experimentation is I've always kind of thought about things in a very long-term way. You know, when I, it goes back to when I was a kid, it goes back to when I first moved to LA, I was like, yo, if I have to be a delivery driver for 10 years, I'm, I'm down, you know? Um, and that's kind of the way that, that I, that I think about this is, I, I think about a lot of this, the decisions I make is like, what will this feel like five years from now? Like, will this stand the test of time? Will it be corny? I think, it, I think about that with music as well. Um, and so having that perspective, I mean, obviously, man, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely super aware of like the position that I'm in. I'm super thankful to be in it. Um, but at the same time, it kind of puts a big responsibility on me if I am going to be like a, you know, historic artist or whatever the case is, like to keep putting out like the best shit that I possibly can. So kind of trying to find the balance of, you know, experimenting, always doing new things, but making sure that, um, I come correct with the music and, um, that's, that's, that's been the balance for me. So, but I'm definitely aware. Yeah. We're getting to the end of this, but before we jump into our, our final section, uh, you know, I asked you a question about sort of where do you go after glass house in terms of web three, but mm. you know, all that aside, just, uh, just speaking to Daniel Allen in terms of your future, you know, what are your goals? Where do you want to get to, um, you know, with your career and everything you've got going on. I want to play Lollapalooza. That's yeah. uh that's, that's a really big one for me. Like it's the first festival that I stumbled into as a kid. Um, I've, I've tweeted it. I've tweeted out that I will play it with absolutely no backing multiple times. Uh, I'm just trying to put it out there, but that's been the biggest goal, man. Like it's, it's, it's going to be like a big moment, moment in my career. I feel like I can see it. I feel like I can taste it, but, uh, I've had my, my, my eyes pretty dead set on that, but that that's like a more straightforward answer. I think really like my, my bigger goals here, if I'm being honest, is just to be able to inspire other artists to be able to understand that the system that they're in isn't the only one. Um, I don't think that record labels are bad. I think that a lot of times they get a bad rap. Um, but I think that, you know, for an artist that, that that moved here, kind of moved across the country, dropped everything, I was convinced that that was really the only way that I could be doing an artist project. And I think the reality is, is if you are able to, you know, find some sort of a community and people that are involved in your art, you can do things on your own and you don't have, not at the cost of creative integrity, because that's just, I think that's where the term like sellout comes from, uh, really is just people that, maybe you can make a bunch of money by making something by making something that isn't necessarily the creatively coolest thing ever. Um, and I just don't think that, I just don't think that has to be the case. So over, over a longer time horizon, um, my biggest thing is really just to amplify the story and kind of tell kids out there, tell other people out there that like, yo, this isn't, um, this is bigger than music. This is, um, just a way that you can live your life, you know? So. When you, when you do play Lollapalooza, we're going to clip that little bit and share it out. And it's, that clip's we'll going to turn go that viral. into an yeah, NFT. Yeah, yeah. We'll let's go. Into- it'll be it'll be the visual. It'll be the oh, visual yeah. on the on the LED wall. <laughs> Love it, Daniel. This has been an awesome conversation. As Alf mentioned, we like to end every episode of Show Me the Crypto with the same three questions we ask every guest. It's a segment we call "You Had Me at Crypto." Alf's going to ask you those questions. Cool. All right, Daniel, you ready for it? 
Let's go. All right. The first question is, who's your favorite person to follow in the crypto space? Uh, Cooper Turley. Cooper Trooper. <laughs> nice. Nice. If you didn't say that, he might have come after you, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I know. I had to think about it. <laughs> All right. Second question. What will the price of Bitcoin be 10 years from now? What year is it? 2022? 2022. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I had to yeah. take a second to um, think about that. <laughs> I was trying to tie together why that was going to influence yeah, yeah. your $200,000. Okay. Right. Nice. Nice. Love it. You'd be surprised. We had so many people saying a million like six months ago, maybe longer than yeah, that. Yeah, in the bull run, everyone said a million or more. And now everyone has been like all, around 200. Grand. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. Third question. What is the most underrated coin or project in all of crypto? Overstem. Other than overstim yeah. or like anything related to yourself. We always make guests answer something that's not. Okay, 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 okay. Um, the most underrated project? Oh, uh, loners. loners? L L N R Z. Yeah, loners. The most underrated project in all of crypto. It's a, uh, it's um, kind of like a like a musician DAO with a lot of dope artists on it that I think people overlook. Cool. Cool. Right check on. We'll have to check that out. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for joining Alf and I on this episode of Show Me the Crypto. Of course. Thank you guys for having me. Thank you for listening to Show Me the Crypto. Please make sure to subscribe as well as rate and review this podcast.